Chapter Twenty of Reed Anthony Cowman, an autobiography by Andy Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Holding the Fort, as in many other lines of business, there were ebb and flood tides in cattle. The opening of the trail through to the extreme northwest gave the range livestock industry its greatest impetus. There have always been seasons of depression and advances, the cycles covering periods from ten to a dozen years, the duration of the ebb and stationary tides being double that of the flood. Outside influences have had their bearing, and the wrestling of an empire from its savage possessors in the West and its immediate occupancy by the dominant race in ranching stimulated cattle prices far beyond what was justified by the laws of supply and demand. The boom in livestock in the Southwest, which began in the early 80s, stands alone in the market variations of the last half-century. And as if to rebuke the folly of man and remind him that he is but grass, nature frowned with two successive severe winters, humbling the kings and princes of the range. Up to and including the winter of 1883-84, the loss among range cattle was trifling. The country was new and open, and when the stock could drift freely, in advance of storms, their instincts carried them to the sheltering coolies, cut banks, and broken country until the blizzard had passed. Since our firm began maturing beeves ten years before, the losses attributable to winter were never noticed nor did they in the least affect our profits. On my ranches in Texas, the primitive law of survival of the fittest prevailed, the winter kill falling sorest among the weak and aging cows. My personal loss was always heavier than that of the firm, owing to my holdings being mixed stock and due to the fact that an animal in the South never took on tallow enough to assist materially in resisting a winter. The cattle of the north always had the flesh to withstand the rigors of the wintry season, dry, cold, zero weather being preferable to rain, sleet, and the northers that swept across the plains of Texas. The range of the new company was intermediate between the extremes of north and south, and as we handled all steer cattle, no one entertained any fear from the climate. I passed a comparatively idle winter at my home on the Clear Fork. Weekly reports reached me from the new ranch, several of which caused uneasiness, as our fences were several times cut on the southwest, and a prairie fire, the work of an incendiary, broke out at midnight on our range. Happily, the wind fell, and by daybreak the smoke arose in columns, summoning every man on the ranch, and the fire was soon brought under control. As a precaution to such a possibility, we had burned fire guards entirely around the range by plowing furrows one hundred feet apart and burning out the middle. Taking advantage of creeks and watercourses, natural boundaries that a prairie fire could hardly jump, we had cut and quartered the pasture with fire guards in such a manner that, unless there was a concerted action on the part of any hirelings of our enemies, it would have been impossible to have burned more than a small portion of the range at any one time. 
But these malicious attempts at our injury made the outfit doubly vigilant, and cutting fences and burning range would have proven unhealthful occupations had the perpetrators, red or white, fallen into the hands of the foreman and his men. I naturally looked on the bright side of the future, and in the hope that, once the entire range was fenced, we could keep trespassers out. I made preparations for the spring drive. With the first appearance of grass, all the surplus horses were ordered down to Texas from the company ranch. There was a noticeable lull at the cattle convention that spring, and an absence of buyers from the northwest was apparent, resulting in little or no trouble in contracting for delivery on the ranch, and in buying on company account at the prevailing prices of the spring before. Cattle were high enough as it was. In fact, the market was top-heavy and wobbling on its feet, though the brightest of us cowmen naturally supposed that current values would always remain up in the pictures. As manager of the new company, I bought and contracted for 50,000 steers, ten herds of which were to be driven on company account. All the cattle came from the Panhandle and North Texas, above the quarantine line, the latter precaution being necessary in order to avoid any possibility of fever in mixing through and northern wintered stock. With the opening of spring, two of my old foremen were promoted to assist in the receiving, as my contracts called for everything to be passed upon on the home range before starting the herds. Some little friction had occurred the summer before with the deliveries at the company ranch in an effort to turn in short-aged cattle. All contracts this year and the year before called for threes, and frequently several hundred long twos were found in a single herd, and I refused to accept them unless at the customary difference in price. More or less contention arose, and for the present spring I proposed to curb all friction at home, allotting to my assistance the receiving of the herds for company risk, and personally passing on seven under contract. The original firm was still in the field, operating exclusively in Central Texas and Panhandle cattle. Both my ranches sent out their usual contribution of steers and cows, consigned them to the care of the firm, which was now giving more attention to quality than quantity. The absence of men from the Northwest at the cattle convention that spring was taken as an omen that the upper country would soon be satiated, a hint that retrenchment was in order, and a better class of stock was to receive the firm's attention in its future operations. My personal contingent of steers would have passed muster in any country, and as to my consignment of cows, they were pure velvet and could defy competition in the upper-range markets. Everything moved out with the grass as usual, and when the last of the company herds had crossed Red River, I rode through to the new ranch. The north and east line of fence was nearing completion. The western string was joined to the original boundary, and, with the range fully enclosed, my ranch foreman, the men, and myself looked forward to a prosperous future. The herds arrived and were located. The usual round-up outfits were sent out wherever there was a possibility of a stray, and we settled down in pastoral security. 
The ranch outfit had held their own during the winter just past, had trailed down stolen cattle, and knew to a certainty who the thieves were and where they came from. Except what had been slaughtered, all the stock was recovered, and due notice given to offenders that Judge Lynch would preside should anyone suspected of fence-cutting, starting incendiary fires, or stealing cattle be caught within the boundaries of our leases. Fortunately, the other cowmen were tiring of paying tribute to the usurpers, and our determined stand heartened holders of cattle on the reservation, many of whom were now seeking leases direct from the tribes. I made it my business personally to see every owner of livestock occupying the country, and urged upon them the securing of leases and making an organized fight for our safety. Leases in the Cherokee Strip had fenced as a matter of convenience and protection, and I urged the same course on the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Reservation, offering the free use of our line fences to anyone who wished to adjoin our pastures. In the course of a month, nearly every acre of the surrounding country was taken, only one or two squaw men holding out, and these claiming their ranges under Indian rights. The movement was made so aggressive that the usurpers were driven into obscurity, never showing their hand again until after the presidential election that fall. During the summer, a deputation of Cheyennes and Arapahoes visited me at ranch headquarters. On the last lease taken, and now enclosed in our pasture, there were a number of wild plum groves covering thousands of acres, and the Indians wanted permission to gather the ripening fruit. Taking advantage of the opportunity in granting the request, I made it a point to fortify the friendly relations, not only with ourselves, but with all other cattlemen on the reservation. Ten days' permission was given to gather the wild plums. Camps were allotted to the Indians, and when the fruit was all gathered, I barbecued five stray beeves in parting with my guests. The Indian agent and every cowman on the reservation were invited, and at the conclusion of the festival, the Quaker agent made the assembled chiefs a fatherly talk. Torpid from feasting, the bucks grunted approval of the new order of things, and an Arapahoe chief, responding in behalf of his tribe, said that the rent for the grass now fed his people better than under the old buffalo days. Pledging anew the fraternal bond, and appointing the gathering of the plums as an annual festival thereafter, the tribes took up their march in returning to their encampment. I was called to Dodge but once during the summer of 1884. My steers had gone to Ogallala and were sold, the cows remaining at the lower market, all of which had changed owners with the exception of 1,000 head. The demand had fallen off, and a dull close of the season was predicted, but I shaded prices and closed up my personal holdings before returning. Several of the firm's steer herds were unsold at Dodge, but on the approach of the shipping season, I returned to my task, and we began to move out beeves with seven outfits in the saddle. Four round trips were made to the crew, shipping out 20,000 double and half that number of single wintered cattle. The grass had been fine that summer, and the beeves came up in prime condition. 
always topping the market as range cattle at the markets to which they were consigned. That branch of the work over, every energy was centered in making the ranch snug for the winter. Extra fire guards were plowed, and the middles burned out, cutting the range into a dozen parcels, and thus, as far as possible, the winter forage was secured for our holdings of 80,000 cattle. Hay and grain contracts had been previously let, the latter to be freighted in from southern Kansas. When the news reached us, that the recent election had resulted in a political change of administration. What effect this would have on our holding cattle on Indian lands was pure conjecture. Though our enemies came out of hiding, gloating over the change and swearing vengeance on the cowmen on the Cheyenne and Arapahoe reservation. The turn of the tide in cattle prices was noticeable at all the range markets that fall. A number of herds were unsold at Dodge, among them being one of ours, but we turned it southeast early in September and wintered it on our range in the outlet. The largest drive in the history of the trail had taken place that summer, and the failure of the west and northwest to absorb the entire offerings of the drovers made the old firm apprehensive of the future. There was a noticeable shrinkage in our profits from trail operations, but with the supposition that it was merely an off-year, the matter was passed for the present. It was the opinion of the directors of the new company that no dividends should be declared until our range was stocked to its full capacity, or until there was a comfortable surplus. This suited me, and returning home, I expected to spend the winter with my family, now increased to four girls and six boys." but a cowman can promise himself little rest or pleasure. After a delightful week spent on my western ranch, I returned to the Clear Fork, and during the latter part of November, a terrible norther swept down and caught me in a hunting camp twenty-five miles from home. My two oldest boys were along, a negro cook and a few hands, and in spite of our cozy camp, we all nearly froze to death. Nothing but a roaring fire saved us during the first night of its duration, and the next morning we saddled our horses and struck out for home, riding in the face of a sleet that froze our clothing like armor. Norther followed Norther, and I was getting uneasy about the company ranch when I received a letter from Major Hunter, stating that he was starting out for our range in the outlet and predicting a heavy loss of cattle. Headquarters in the Indian Territory were fully 250 miles due north, and within an hour after receiving the letter, I started overland on horseback, using two of my best saddlers for the trip. To have gone by rail and stage would have taken four days, and if fair weather favored me, I could nearly divide that time by half. Changing horses frequently, one day out I had left Red River in my rear, but before me lay an uninhabited country unless I veered from my course and went through the Chickasaw Nation. For the sake of securing grain for the horses, this tack was made, following the old Chisholm Trail for nearly one hundred miles. The country was in the grip of winter, sleet and snow covering the ground, with succor for man and horse far apart. Munford Johnson's ranch on the Washita River was reached late the second night. 
and by daybreak the next morning I was on the trail, making Quartermaster Creek by one o'clock that day. Fortunately, no storms were encountered en route, but King Winter ruled the range with an iron hand, fully six inches of snow covering the pasture, over which was a crusted sleet capable of carrying the weight of a beef. The foreman and his men were working night and day to succor the cattle. Between storms, two crews of boys drifted everything back from the south line of fence, while others cut ice and opened the water to the perishing animals. Scarcity of food was the most serious matter, being unable to reach the grass under its coat of sleet and snow. The cattle had eaten willows down to the ground. When a boy in Virginia, I had often helped cut down basswood and maple trees in the spring for the cattle to browse upon, and sending to the agency for new axes, I armed every man on the ranch with one, and we began felling the cottonwood and other edible timber along the creeks and rivers in the pasture. The cattle followed the axemen like sheep, eating the tender branches of the softer woods to the size of a man's wrist. The crash of a falling tree bringing them by the dozens to browse and stay their hunger. I swung an axe with the men, and never did slaves under the eye of a taskmaster work as faithfully or as long as we did in cutting ice and falling timber in succoring our holding of cattle. Several times the sun shone warm for a few days, melting the snow off the southern slopes, when we took to our saddles, breaking the crust with long poles, the cattle following to where the range was bared that they might get a bit of grass. Had it not been for a few such sunny days, our loss would have been double what it was. But as it was, with the general range in the clutches of sleet and snow for over fifty days, about twenty percent of our holdings were winter-killed, principally of through cattle. Our saddle stock, outside of what was stabled and grain-fed, braved the winter, pawing away the snow and sleet in foraging for their subsistence. A few weeks of fine, balmy weather in January and February followed the distressing season of wintry storms, the cattle taking to the short buffalo grass and rapidly recuperating. But just when we felt that the worst was over, simultaneously half a dozen prairie fires broke out in different portions of the pasture, calling every man to a fight that lasted three days. Our enemies, not content with havoc wrought by the elements, were again in the saddle, striking in the dark and escaping before dawn, inflicting injuries on dumb animals and harassing their owners. That it was the work of hireling renegades, more likely white than red, there was little question, but the necessity of preserving the range withheld us from trailing them down and meting out a justice they so richly deserved. Dividing the ranch help into half a dozen crews, we rode to the burning grass and began counter-firing and otherwise resorting to every known method in checking the consuming flames. One of the best-known devices, in short grass and flank fires, was the killing of a light beef, beheading and splitting it open leaving the hide to hold the parts together. By turning the animal flesh side down and taking ropes from a front and hind foot 
to the pommels of two saddles, the men, by riding apart, could straddle the flames, virtually rubbing the fire out with the dragging carcass. Other men followed with wet blankets and beat out any remaining flames, the work being carried on at a gallop, with a change of horses every mile or so, and the fire was thus constantly hemmed into a point. The variations of the wind sometimes entirely checked all effort, between midnight and morning being the hours in which most progress was accomplished. No sooner was one section of the fire brought under control than we divided the forces and hastened to lend assistance to the next nearest section, the cooks with commissaries following up the firefighters. While a single blade of grass was burning, no one thought of sleeping, and after one-third of the range was consumed, the last of the incendiary fires was stamped out, when we lay down around the wagons and slept the sleep of exhaustion. There was still enough range saved to bring the cattle safely through until spring. Leaving the entire ranch outfit to ride the fences, several lines of which were found cut by the renegades in entering and leaving the pasture and guard the gates, I took train and stage for the grove. Major Hunter had returned from the firm's ranch in the Strip, where heavy losses were encountered, though it then rested in perfect security from any influence except the elements. With me, the burning of the company range might be renewed at any moment, in which event we should have to cut our own fences and let the cattle drift south through an Indian country, with nothing to check them except Red River. A climax was approaching in the company's existence, and the delay of a day or week might mean inestimable loss. In cunning and craftiness, our enemies were expert. They knew their control of the situation fully, and nothing but cowardice would prevent their striking the final victorious blow. My old partner and I were a unit as to the only course to pursue, one which meant a dishonorable compromise with our enemies as the only hope of saving the cattle. A wire was accordingly sent east, calling a special meeting of the stockholders. We followed ourselves within an hour. On arriving at the national capital, we found that all outside shareholders had arrived in advance of ourselves, and we went into session with closed doors and the Committee on Entertainment and Banquets inactive. In as plain as words as the English language would permit, as general manager of the company, I stated the cause for calling the meeting, and bluntly suggested the only avenue of escape. Call it tribute, blackmail, or what you will. We were at the mercy of as heartless a set of scoundrels as ever missed a rope, whose mercenaries, like the willing hirelings that they were, would cheerfully do the bidding of their superiors. Major Hunter, in his remarks before the meeting, modified my rather radical statement with the more plausible argument that this tribute money was merely insurance, and what was five or ten thousand dollars a year, where an original investment of three million and our surplus were in jeopardy. Would any line, life, fire, or marine, carry our risk as cheaply? These men had been receiving toll from our predecessors, and were then in a position to levy tribute or wreck the company. Notwithstanding our request for immediate action, an adjournment was taken. A wire could have been sent to a friend in Fort Reno that night, 
and all would have gone well for the future security of the Cheyenne and Arapahoe Cattle Company. But I lacked authority to send it, and the next morning at the meeting, the New England blood that had descended from the Puritan fathers was again in the saddle, shouting the old slogans of no compromise while they had God and right on their side. Major Hunter and I both keenly felt the rebuke, but personal friends prevented an open rupture, while the more conservative ones saw brighter prospects in the political change of an administration which was soon to assume the reins of government. A number of congressmen and senators among our stockholders were prominent in the ascendant party, and once the new regime took charge, a general shake-up of affairs in and around Fort Reno was promised. I remembered the old maxim of a new broom, yet in spite of the blandishments that were showered down in silencing my active partner and me, I could almost smell the burning range, see the horizon lighted up at night by the licking flames, hear the gloating of our enemies. In the hour of their victory, and the click of the nippers of my own men in cutting the wire that the cattle might escape and live. I left Washington somewhat heartened. Major Hunter, ever inclined to look on the bright side of things, believed that the crisis had passed, even bolstering up my hopes in the next administration. It was the immediate necessity that was worrying me, for it meant a summer's work to gather our cattle on Red River and in the intermediate country and bring them back to the home range. The mysterious absence of any report from my foreman on my arrival at the Grove did not mislead me to believe that no news was good news, and I accordingly hurried on to the front. There was a marked respect shown me by the civilians located at Fort Reno, something unusual but I hurried on to the agency where all was quiet, and thence to ranch headquarters. There I learned that a second attempt to burn the range had been frustrated, that one of our boys had shot dead a white man in the act of cutting the east string of fence, that the same night three fires had broken out in the pasture, and that a squad of our men, in riding to the light, had run afoul of two renegade Cheyennes armed with wire nippers, whose remains lay in the pasture unburied. Both horses were captured and identified as not belonging to the Indians, while their owners were well known. Fortunately, the wind veered shortly after the fire started, driving the flames back against the plowed guards, and the attempt to burn the range came to naught. A salutary lesson had been administered to the hirelings of the usurpers, and with a new moon approaching its full, it was believed that night marauding had ended for that winter. None of our boys recognized the white man, there being no doubt, but he was imported for the purpose, and he was buried where he fell. But I notified the Indian agent, who sent for the remains of the two renegades and took possession of the horses. The season for the beginning of active operations on trail and for ranch account was fast approaching, and leaving the boys to hold the fort during my absence, I took my private horses and turned homeward. End of chapter 20